This is an RNZ podcast. What about the children? There are babies dying right now, and this is all you can say? We have someone's families right in front of you right now, and that's all you can say? You care about your colleagues more than these babies dying right now? We are reviewing our selection process, uh, but have introduced immediate steps. That was the editor of the Otago Daily Times, Barry Stewart, on the street outside the paper's premises in central Dunedin last Wednesday, addressing people who were protesting about that now-notorious cartoon in the paper the day before, which made light of Samoa's deadly struggle with measles. The cartoon showed a woman leaving a travel agency saying she'd been told that the least popular spots were the ones that people were picking up in Samoa. Now, at that point, the outbreak had already claimed more than 50 lives. That night, the South Tonight News Show on the local TV station Channel 39, which is also owned by the ODT's publisher Allied Press, led with the editorial crisis at its own company, and the host kicked off in Samoan. Talo falava, malo good evening, I'm Daryl Baza. Yesterday, the Otago Daily Times published a cartoon making reference to the measles crisis in Samoa. Today, editor Barry Stewart apologised to protesters gathered outside the newspaper's headquarters and says Tremaine's cartoon should never have been published. Shut down this racist newspaper. Protesters make themselves heard outside the doors of the Otago Daily Times at lunchtime today. And at the end of that bulletin, the ODT's editorial executive Hayden Meikle told The South tonight that the paper wouldn't be ducking the issue in the next edition on Thursday. Uh, We'll have more reaction to the Tremaine cartoon issue. Uh, We've got an apology on the front page, uh, a news story as well, and we're publishing an entire page of uh, reaction, tweets and comments and uh, letters which have been been pouring in and we have been listening, so um, plenty of that content in tomorrow. Under the heading, We Got It Wrong, editor Barry Stewart said the cartoon was significantly more than crass and insensitive. It was deeply offensive and distressing. The cartoon should not have been selected for the editorial page. It should not have been published, and we should have made this much clearer when we understood the impact of our decision. But it took two days for Mr Stewart and the ODT to get to that point. When the paper first responded to the backlash after the cartoon first appeared in print on Tuesday, it was with two simple lines on its website expressing regret. A fuller apology from Barry Stewart followed for what he called a deeply regrettable error in judgment. And then it became, ironically, the paper's most popular online item. And the terms ODT and Tremaine were trending on Twitter at the same time, ahead of the topic Samoa. Barry Stewart's apology was then published next to the paper's editorial on Wednesday morning, though it was hard to spot unless you were looking for it inside the paper. But outside the ODT's offices the next day, you couldn't miss those protesters. Barry Stewart told them, and waiting reporters, he was professionally embarrassed and he knew that he'd hurt his own colleagues. And those are hard things for an editor to say in public. But, as we heard at the start, those protesters were not bothered by their feelings, but those of people suffering in Samoa. But those people were clearly not front of mind for the Queenstown-based cartoonist Garrick Tremaine when he used the situation as the simple backdrop to a punchline on Tuesday. And it didn't take much imagination to work out how those people would have felt, according to the former editor of The Listener, Finlay MacDonald, who put it like this on Facebook. Adjusted for our relative size, imagine if hundreds, maybe thousands, of babies had died in New Zealand and an Australian newspaper made a joke about it. I don't think these clowns get it even now. 
and the artist himself didn't seem to on Tuesday when he told RNZ reporter Hamish Cardwell this. It's a simple, uh, light-hearted joke. If you've read the cartoon, its uh, basis of the joke is a travel agent taking the wrong end of the stick and making a stupid comment. And Garrett Tremaine went on to tell Hamish Cardwell he was actually helping the situation in Samoa. I'm like, uh, I'm like a lot of New Zealand taxpayers. Um, we're doing what we can for the people of Samoa at the moment and uh, we are sending a lot of um, uh, aid and personnel and, and doing a hell of a lot. I'm one of those and um, I think that's a message in itself, isn't it? And later, Garrett Tremaine told RNZ's Katie Doyle the cartoon was nothing to be upset about. I thought it was an innocuous joke. It doesn't mention anything about deaths or children or these things that everybody else seems to be so concerned about. Uh, it was an innocuous joke of a travel agent making a silly comment and misunderstanding a question. Well, it didn't seem to occur to Garrett Tremaine that measles deaths ought to override nailing a lame pun about spots in a cartoon. He confirmed he was aware that the measles crisis was a big story when he drew the cartoon, though he said he wasn't aware it would be a big story in the paper the same day it appeared. Garrett Tremaine did later apologise on his personal website, where, incidentally, he's described as highly regarded as New Zealand's funniest and most perceptive political cartoonist. But those are not adjectives many people are using to describe him right now. On Wednesday, Barry Stewart told those protesters outside the ODT's building he took full responsibility, and then he told them there would be no more Tremaine cartoons for now, which drew a cheer. The senior editorial team and management uh, met this morning and we have made a decision no longer to run cartoons by Garrett Tremaine while we are working. But that was just a temporary move, he said, pending a review of how the cartoon ended up in the paper. Now, some critics claim this was an accident just waiting to happen. Garrett Tremaine has annoyed people in the past with what you could call antique personal perspectives on sensitive subjects like race and gender in his cartoons. And that includes some journalists at the ODT, some of whom used their private social media accounts this week to criticise Garrett Tremaine and his work, and even the powers that be at the ODT for publishing them in the past. And so did several journalists elsewhere in the media. For example, on Twitter, veteran investigative reporter Donna Chisholm said that ODT staff could even consider going on strike. Given the extent of Tremaine's racist cartooning, it's going to be very difficult for the ODT to remove him after its review without at the same time the editor resigning, given the multiple egregious decisions to publish his trash. And Donna Chisholm followed that up with the hashtag Trexit. Well, it remains to be seen whether Tremaine will appear in the paper again and what the review of the procedures at the ODT will reveal. ODT editor Barry Stewart won't comment on that and what he called an employment review until they're complete. On Friday, the paper said that top brass have met members of the Samoan community in Dunedin and discussed ways to make amends and help the people of Samoa. And they say they're consulting people about training in respect of cultural intelligence and unconscious bias. And they'll also be responding individually to the more than 1,000 letters and complaints they've received. In that front-page apology on Thursday morning, Barry Stewart also said that daily cartoons will now be considered and debated by our broader editorial team rather than being just the preserve of the editor.
But in the meantime, the unanswered questions include, was there any editorial debate about whether to publish this particular cartoon, and did anyone check it at all before printing it? And how often in the past have editorial processes resulted in Garrett Tremaine's controversial cartoons, or those of other artists, ending up in the bin and not on the paper's editorial pages? On Wednesday, one man at a Samoan community meeting in Mangari, Tuala Tamulotu Sali, told RNZ's Jesse Chang this about that controversial cartoon. I've been to Samoan, I've, I've buried some of those kids, so I've seen the pain in those parents. So, what we're trying to do here is, like I said, bring some comfort by, by what we're trying to do. Either we're praying or bringing supplies. So, if you have time to hate that guy for what, then you're, not, you're focusing on the wrong issue. And the right issue to focus on is the plight of people struggling with this deadly disease in Samoa. And it's sad that coverage of that cartoon has become more widely read and shared here than the news coverage of the crisis itself. On Midweek Media Watch last Wednesday, we looked at some of the confronting, moving and eye-opening work of New Zealand reporters on the ground there from RNZ, Samoa Observer, Stuff, TVNZ, News Hub and others. And you'll find that on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website under the title compassionate coverage versus one crass cartoon. This is a news report by internet firm Tencent from September 2015 about consumer prices in China. It is a decently written article. It laid out the economic data. It presented several analysts different takes on the numbers. But what's really unique about this is that it was written by a robot developed by Tencent. The AI robot is called Dream Rider. It's been operational for nearly two years now, publishing more than 2,000 articles per day. That was the beginning of a report on the China Global Television Network back in 2015. And as you heard there, a robot, or more accurately a computer algorithm, was being used to write news stories. Fast forward to November last year, and the Chinese state news agency Xinhua had moved one step closer to robotic journalism. Hello, everyone. I'm an English artificial intelligence anchor. This is my very first day in Xinhua News Agency. My voice and appearance are modeled on Zhang Zhao, a real anchor with Xinhua. The development of the media industry calls for continuous innovation and deep integration with the international advanced technologies. I will work tirelessly to keep you informed as texts will be typed into my system uninterrupted. Around the same time, one of Microsoft's AI researchers, Mar Gonzalez Franco, was telling a gathering of editors in Lisbon about huge leaps in computer power. We can translate Wikipedia in less than a tenth of a second. This is six billion words out of, it's, it's faster than blinking. In the same session, Reuters editorial chief operating officer Reg Chua pointed out that the pace of change posed real challenges for journalism. So I think we're at an early stage where, you know, just as the early age of photography a century ago, you know, where we really need to sort of evolve standards and systems for explaining to, to readers what we're doing, what the methodology is. We need to be much more clear about what the, the biases are in the data that we're analyzing, the biases in the algorithms that we're using to analyze that data, and things that we can create so that people have a, a good sense of comfort that what they're getting in a cybernetic newsroom, is the sort of um, thing that they can trust. And last month, NBR's technology writer Rob O'Neill warned readers that artificial intelligence snake oil was being peddled by some in the industry. 
There's been waves and waves of technology and hype coming through the IT industry over the last 20 or 30 years, one after the other. The hype gets overblown. Every single time, the hype gets overblown. And I think we're well into that stage with AI. So when it comes to AI and journalism, how do we separate the hype and gimmickry from real advances and how the craft of journalism is practised? Charlie Beckett, a professor of journalism at the London School of Economics, is as well placed as anyone to sort the journalistic wheat from the PR chaff. He's the lead author of New Powers, New Responsibilities, a global survey of how AI is being used by 71 news organisations in 32 countries. Sadly, New Zealand wasn't one of them. That was published last month. In the report, he writes, The hope is that journalists will be algorithmically turbocharged, capable of using their human skills in new and more effective ways. So what does an algorithmically turbocharged journalist look like? Well, sometimes they probably look a bit confused because actually understanding the algorithms uh, is complicated, but it doesn't matter. It's the tools that, that, that it can give you. Some of it is familiar. Things like search, you know, on some somewhere like Google is algorithmically driven. But you can do a lot more. The, the tools can help journalists to do better news gathering. You know, they can search huge data sets like bank records or court records to find information. It helps them to write the stories. We've seen fantastic machine learning tools for things like translation. There's a tool, for example, that can check whether your news website has got a good gender balance of imagery of, you know, men and women, and it will tell you if you haven't. And then, of course, perhaps most importantly, the algorithms can kind of turbocharge the way that you connect to the people who really matter, the customers, you know, the public, and it can help us personalise that journalism. It can help us understand what kind of uh, news stories people are clicking on, whether they want more of that or whether they want something a bit different, whether they want stories long or perhaps they prefer video. So it's a complete toolkit, really. It can help all aspects of journalism. So in that sense, it puts fuel in the tank. Well, let's talk about some of the more spectacular ones that you talk about in the report. One that caught my eye was the Texties leprosy of the land. An incredible investigation that I think went through hundreds of thousands of satellite images to reveal this uh, illegal mining of amber. So how does something like that work? Well, that was a really interesting one, as you say. It was in Ukraine, which you don't think of as sort of, you know, cutting-edge tech country. Um, But it was a really good example of something that would have been literally impossible to do with human eyes, to program a computer to go through thousands and thousands of images. And it, it was trained, you know, you train a bit like a very clever dog to hunt out the images that reveal where amber mining is happening and so it can literally uh, paint a picture or create a map in this case of a story it gives you the evidence and as you've seen if you click on on that story it's really engaging you know it's much more interesting and informative than if it was just a long text article and that took time it's not easy you know they had to have technologists to help them program that and make it work Uh, but it was also vital that you had the journalists who could look at the data that it was getting and make a story out of it that people would actually read so that was a great example of a kind of you know one-off special 
use of artificial intelligence technologies. And how do you prepare? How you know? Because as a journalist, I would have no idea, obviously, how to program a computer to do that type of thing. And even more worryingly, I suppose, it wouldn't occur to me that a computer could do it. So, what are the types of things that you're yeah. proposing? Me too, by the way. You know, I'm not a tech expert at all. And that's the point of this, is that it's uh, an opportunity to combine, you know, good old-fashioned journalistic skills and judgment with the technology. And that's the biggest problem that we came across, which is we're, we're in a world where, you know, artificial intelligence technologies are changing loads of different industries, you know, from banking to health. And that means there's a lot of competition for people who know about this stuff. And journalism isn't, as you know, isn't incredibly well resourced these days. So it's going to be a real struggle to get those skilled people in, especially skilled people who actually want to work with journalists and can fit into, you know, the special sort of ethical and editorial demands of of journalism. And there's a bigger general knowledge gap. You know, you are not alone in not knowing about these technologies. You don't have to. You don't have to know how to program the computer, but you at least have to understand the kind of principles about data training and, for example, the risks, you know, that uh, is it accurate enough? Is it identifying the right kind of information and how do we use that? So the biggest challenge we identified in this report and, and what the newsrooms were telling us is that they need a lot more training, they need a lot more knowledge right across the newsroom and they need to get basically some boffins in who are prepared to work with hacks. You also mentioned a number of media organisations which are using AI to actually write stories. So you've got the Washington Post Heliograph, which I think wrote about elections and the Summer Olympics. Le Monde did a similar thing, reporting all of its election results. Were there problems? Do they make mistakes? And should we be worried as journalists that, in fact, we're going to be replaced by algorithmic journalism? Well, I think the evidence from the report was that you don't replace journalists particularly because you still need them to help use these tools and to make sure they don't make mistakes. Most of the the journalism that's been replaced so far has been the boring stuff. It's been the things like the weather reports, the financial reports, the sports reports, the kind of journalism that most people don't particularly enjoy doing it's not particularly skillful, it's not particularly creative. And the hope, anyway, is that if you get that boring stuff out of the way, that allows the journalist to focus on the more creative stuff, like investigative journalism or human interest journalism. And that seems to be the evidence. So a, a, a company like Bloomberg, which does a lot of financial reporting, they're able to put this stuff into practice straight away. And it also means that they're able to do extra stuff. So even the routine, for example, election results, it means, you know, they can automatically tailor the election results to your particular constituency, for example, and they can do that instantly. So it's kind of adding extra content as well as uh, replacing some of the boring stuff. We've heard a lot over recent years or probably a few years ago now about journalism and the huge amount of content which just comes straight from press releases. And I wonder if the nightmare scenario is that we're going to have AI-generated press releases being processed by AI journalists. You know, could we just see our media filled with material that literally has never touched a human hand? Yeah, I think that's a real danger, Jeremy. Most of the newsrooms I spoke to are actually 
adopting a strategy where they're creating less content but better content. They realise that their customers are feeling overwhelmed by the amount of information out there. So from a newsroom point of view, it's kind of less is, is more and, and get the AI to help uh, do the boring stuff or to help you do the better journalism. But I think you're right. I think there's a real danger that, um, you know, the kind of corporate PR type people are going to want to churn out stuff. And also a serious problem around, you know, misinformation and fake news that we've all heard about deep fake videos. But also we, we already have this. We have bots out there that are churning out fake news or disinformation or propaganda. And that's that's a real issue. And we need to look at how algorithms themselves can be used to police that and to counter it, to protect people from that kind of tsunami of rubbish and propaganda. You suggest in the report that there's a window of two to five years if we value journalism as a social good provided by humans for humans. Why such a short window? What's the potential problem? Yeah, I don't want to be too apocalyptic. As I also say in the report, you know, we shouldn't think that a technology is either going to save or kill journalism. But what was really interesting was, as well as talking to, you know, uh, dozens of newsrooms around the world, and this is what they were telling us, that they fear there's a kind of FOMO thing here, you know, fear of missing out because they can see the usefulness of this, uh, this technology and they want to get on board. But if you look at other industries, you can see that they are investing a lot of money very quickly. Now, there's always a danger that you jump in too quickly and you make mistakes, which is why we think it's so important to try and learn lessons from other industries like retail or banking or health, lessons about, you know, how this technology can be adopted, but also the risks, you know, the financial risks and the, the ethical risks as well, for example, of algorithmic bias. But there is a sense that if you don't get with it, then the point you made is, is true, that there are lots of bad actors out there who are going to be using this technology to create bad information. So, you know, if we believe in serving the public, then journalism does, I'm afraid, have to get its act together. It has to at least start looking at this. It's uh, not an instant fix. Uh, I said in the report that this is more of a marathon. It's a complex set of technologies, but you have to start at least informing yourself about them and asking at least is some of these technologies applicable to uh, my news organisation. And if you were going to advise New Zealand newsrooms to get on board the AI turbocharged train, what's the first thing they should be doing? Well, I think the first thing is, apart from reading my fabulous report, is just getting yourself informed about it, really, that this this stuff is is complicated, but it's like any uh, computer tool. I mean, you don't have to know exactly how a... Car, uh, car engine works to be able to drive a car, uh, but I think the first step is is just get yourself informed. Um, look at the, what other newsrooms are doing with this technology. Um, perhaps talk to uh, other experts. I'm sure there are tons of AI experts in New Zealand, in universities, and perhaps in other industries. Uh, so I think the first thing is get yourself informed. Don't rush into paying a load of money for something that's uh, over sophisticated but start to think about who is there in my organisation who knows about this and can start thinking at least about possible uh, use cases uh, for our newsroom. And I, I think that the, the, one of the biggest lessons is start small. 
you know, try something specific, something uh, relatively cheap and simple, see how that works, see how your uh, work uh, flows and your, uh, you know, the the, 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 the roles that people have, how management can adapt to this before you rush into a strategy. Uh, but I think, you know, really get yourself informed about this uh, because if you don't, somebody else will. That was Charlie Beckett, a professor of journalism at the London School of Economics and the author of New Powers, New Responsibilities, a global survey of how artificial intelligence is being used in more than 32 countries for journalism. And he was speaking there to Jeremy Rose. And there's an extended version of that interview in the web version of the story, which you'll find on the MediaWatch page of the RNZ website. Good evening. Some Christmas joy for the National Party. Our latest One News comma Brunton poll showing that, with the support of ACTS, they could form a government. It's our second poll in a row putting the party in the driver's seat. Meanwhile, more bad news for Labour. Let's have a look at the numbers. That was TVNZ One News presenter Simon Dallow last Monday night telling viewers all about its latest political opinion poll and the Colmar Brunton poll showed National and ACT could, on those numbers, scrape together a majority in Parliament but only just. It depended upon a party vote showing for ACT, which would return two MPs for the party, assuming National Helps Act's leader David Seymour win again in Epsom. Now, following their formula, the One News report then played selected scenes from things that happened during the polling period, like Trevor Mallard on a downward slide in the new playground in Parliament's grounds, and Jacinda Ardern goofing around with visiting US TV star Stephen Colbert. Nobody loves me. He's just a poor boy from a poor family. And five minutes later, after running through the numbers and what a parliament might look like if the election result mirrors them next year, reporter Benedict Collins then made this important point right at the very end of the sequence. 13% of people have not made up their minds yet which party they're going to vote for. And that means there's a lot of votes still up to grab next year. And it means that come 2020, it's game on. And that's a good point. If roughly one vote in eight is still up for grabs, well, that could completely upset the scenario TVNZ had just illustrated with its fancy animated graphics of seats in the House. But on Q&A on Monday night, three and a half hours later on TVNZ One, host Jack Tame said this. And this is so interesting. 17% of those people asked don't know or refused to answer. And on Twitter that night, pollster Colmar Brunton had slightly different numbers on that again. 3% refused to answer, they said, and 13% were undecided. That's 16% all up. And on the same channel, less than 12 hours later, TVNZ's breakfast show had an on-screen caption which told its viewers that almost one-fifth of voters were undecided. So if TVNZ is going to tell us that the government could change based on the numbers in their poll, well, they should get those numbers right, and it shouldn't be hard because they're all coming from the same source and the same sample of 1,006 people. Now, on TVNZ's breakfast show that morning, they brought in former minister Peter Dunn to, as they put it, break down the numbers. What is behind um, X growth, do you think? They've got 100% um, growth in, in, in their support. I think a couple of things. I think, uh, firstly, uh, David Seymour's had a lot of publicity over the end-of-life legislation. I think that's given him a prominence that he perhaps didn't have previously, and people have responded to that. But when Colmar Brunton published the full results of the poll 48 hours later on Wednesday, it showed the party on 1.6% support, up from 09 in the previous poll. 
So in other words, that's seven more individuals in the sample of 1,006 this time, not quite a doubling. Now, there were other interesting numbers in the full Colmar Brunton poll report also that weren't exactly highlighted by TVNZ's news coverage, but which put another part of the poll in a very different light. As for the preferred Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern has slipped to 36%. Simon Bridges is up to 10 Jack Tame on Q&A again last Monday. Now, for its party vote responses, the undecideds are stripped out of the percentages by TVNZ so that they can then translate the results to seats in the House. But it's a different story with the preferred Prime Minister results. And Simon Dallow didn't mention the undecideds either in his TVNZ One News report. Let's look now at preferred Prime Minister. Jacinda Ardern is on 36. That's down two points and her lowest result since taking office. Simon Bridges, though, finally in the double digits again on 10. Judith Collins on four and Winston Peters on three. Well, that still leaves a whopping 47% of the sample unaccounted for. The as-yet-ineligible-to-be-Prime Minister Christopher Luxon accounted for a further 1% of that and 10 other politicians polled at less than 1%. But a whopping 39%, or almost four out of every 10 people polled, didn't want to, or preferred not to, pick a preferred Prime Minister. And that went entirely unmentioned by TVNZ. Now, any poll, of course, can be a blip, but the results of the same poll over the past 10 years show that the don't-knows or refuse-to-answers have never dipped below 31%, or almost one person in every three surveyed. And over the past 10 years, the overall trend is pretty obvious too. The vast bulk of people who do answer that question simply pick the Prime Minister who's currently in office, whoever it happens to be. So surely it's now time to junk that question but the fluctuations in preferred Prime Minister polling, though insignificant, are used by the news organisations to create new news stories. Now, to be fair to TVNZ, they don't dwell on the fluctuations as much as their rivals at NewsHub. NewsHub's used its Read Research poll's preferred Prime Minister results to declare Simon Bridges a dead man walking several times last year and earlier this year. But while Simon Bridges now looks set to lead the party next year and into the next election, MediaWorks is looking for a buyer for its TV wing and has warned that it could even turn off its channels if it doesn't find one. It would be an irony indeed if Simon Bridges' leadership outlives NewsHub's TV opinion polls. Now, when TVNZ's Jack Tame sat down with the Prime Minister in the Whanganui Opera House during the Labour Party conference last weekend, Jacinda Ardern told him this was important making sure that you never fixate. I think that's a dangerous place to be, fixation on polls, because ultimately our job is to, is to govern, to make the best decisions that we can. But moments later, she told Jack Tame this. I have a poll that comes to me every two weeks that shows something completely different. What does that Look, show? Not saying, of course, that I don't hear feedback. We need to, of course, hear what voters think and what they feel. Now, the polling commissioned by both the politicians and by the media will intensify as the next election draws nearer. But when they're running through the numbers and drawing conclusions in the media, keep an eye out for the size of the potentially crucial cohort who say they don't know, don't care, or won't answer the pollsters' questions. That's all from the Media Watch team for this week. We'll be back again at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show, and then back again for Media Watch at the same time next Sunday here on RNZ National.